Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a woman with many strings to her bow. Since starting work as a model at the age of 14, she's gone on to work as a presenter, writer, photographer, actress, podcaster and business owner. Back in the 90s, the term wild child pretty much prefixed everything that was written about her after she became the host of Channel 4's late-night controversy machine, The Word, tender age of just 15 and if that wasn't enough to get the tabloids in all of a tither she said i do to duran duran's bass player john taylor at the ripe old age of 19 relocating to la where she's remained ever since and also where she gave birth to their now 31 year old daughter she grew up quickly turning to acting briefly before reinventing herself as a hugely in-demand photographer for iconic fashion magazines like vogue and vanity fair she and John divorced in 1997, and for the last 16 years, she's been married to Strokes guitarist Nick Valenci, and they have twins. In 2011, she shed her professional skin once more and emerged as one of the world's leading and most prominent conversationalists with the launch of The Conversation, a TV series now turned podcast, which saw her sit down with everyone from Lady Gaga to Hillary Clinton and was executive co-produced with her good friend Demi Moore. She's just signed a huge three-year deal in the States to bring back both the conversation as a podcast, as well as hosting podcast series VS Voices for Victoria's Secret, which spotlights similarly trailblazing women and their journeys. And if that wasn't enough, she's about to turn the tables and start the conversation with men, with About the Men, which launches with her first guest, Matthew McConaughey, in a series that explores contemporary masculinity. Now that is one hell of a long intro and it's still barely scratched the surface of everything this woman has done. So let's dial her up and get into it, shall we? It's Amanda de Cabernet. Good morning, Los Angeles. Good morning, London. <laughs> I'm here with my coffee. Me too. Listen, we're not yeah, drinking I mean, the wine, obviously, because you don't drink and it's 9am your time and you're not an yeah. animal. Some people do drink at 9 a.m. And if it's no working, judgment, then that's great. But for me, <laughs> I don't have any judgment at all about it. Um, but 
I'm just, yes, I'm on my second cup of coffee. How is it waking up at 9am and having your life whiz between your ears? It was really interesting because I think I've lost track of the things that I've done and what years they are. <laughs> so it was interesting hearing like, oh my God, I did that then. Oh, right. I was married to him then. Right. I did that job then. I was hosting the word then. Yeah. Um, so it was good to kind of hear the, the chronological order of it because quite frankly, sometimes I forget. I know, especially yeah. at our age and stage of life, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it is interesting having kids that are, um, you know, I was a, I was a mother so young. I was 19 you when I had Atlanta. And, um, you know, I've been a mom like most, well, actually all of my adult life. Mm. And, and the other day I was thinking like, why have I done this to myself? <laughs> you know, like I, I could have just had one and been done. And then I was like, no, no, let's just go ahead. And then I had twins. I was like, okay, this is, you know, I could not be going through having twins in puberty right now, but I am. And, you know, some days are better than others. You've got me on a day that's like, okay. My son is on tour with his dad. Um, and so they are in Seattle today and they're going to Vegas and I'm wow. meeting them in Vegas for one night and then they go off again. Um, so one is out the house for the next month on the road, um, which I think will be an interesting experience for him. That'll be great. And then it's just you and your daughter at home. I mean, I couldn't think of anything worse, quite frankly. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything worse than going on tour for a month, like a stadium <laughs> tour, going on a bus or a plane every single day and having to unpack your luggage every day and talk about like leaving, forgetting where everything is and leaving things behind and not bringing <laughs> enough pairs of knickers with you. And then being in some weird city and being like, I've got to go out and buy knickers from Kmart because I've run out of knickers and, you know, tour life and then eating weird food and not getting enough uh. sleep. But, but my son is 15 and I'm sure he's going to have a great time. He's going to love it. Meanwhile, you can carry on stoking the fires of great conversation at home because, I mean, this this deal that you've signed with iHeartMedia, congratulations, Amanda. It's fantastic Thank to you. see such an investment in female-focused conversation. Um, and you really do bring it. There's, there's no small talk in anything that you do. Um, the conversation was so exciting when it dropped back in 2011. I'm so pleased that you're still working um, the show and bringing so many great voices to it with really unabashed, unapologetic conversation. Thank you. It is, um, you know, there's always a, a kind of interest in what's new and shiny, right? And, um, you know, there's there's the the inclination when people always ask you, well, like, what are you doing now? And if you say, well, I'm doing what I was doing 10 years ago, and actually what I was doing 20 years ago, and actually what I was doing 30 years ago, which is interviewing people. I've been doing this since I'm 15 years old. So mm -hmm. I'm actually doing the same thing, but because of the world we live in, which likes novelty and new and shiny, there is a kind of inclination to, to come up with new ideas all the time. And the truth is, is that the conversation is really kind of the ultimate interview series for me. Mm. And um, it's a great title. It really just sums up what it is. Yeah. Um, and it allows me to, to kind of go into different areas and which is why I didn't do something else and I just kept it going um, because it has such a great solid fan base. It, it is, um, you know, it was on television in 18 countries around the world. And that means it's got a great international fan base. And it allows me to grow with it. And whatever I'm interested in at that sort of time, I can explore. This year, I really felt strongly that I wanted to do some work focused on men, which I think is quite surprising for some people, given my history of working with women. 
and being an advocate for women and really being committed to telling women's stories, which I still am. But I also, over the last couple of, the, of years, have had so many conversations, not only you know, with my husband, who I've been with for 20 years, my son, as I said, is 15. Um, mm -hmm. One of my best friends is a guy. I've got so many men in my life that I have these conversations with. And I realize that someone has to reach across the aisle because if we truly want to create effective change for women, we also need to have men involved in the conversation. We can't mm -hmm. actually do it, but we can only do so much by ourselves. And we can sit around and come up with these great plans of what we, we think men need to do. But if they're not on board, what are we going to do? You know, we can only do so much without cooperation. Yeah, yeah. they and need to be I'm allies really and active allies. And I guess, I bet exactly. you, I mean, I mean, you tell me, but I find men very responsive to probing questions. They're just not I used to too. it within their friendship groups. But it doesn't mean that they won't go there. It just means that it's not the sort of stuff that the guys tend to talk about. But if you actually say, you're right. how's your marriage? You'll probably get a pretty straight answer. Yeah. But their mates would never ask that. I think you're right. And I think there are enough men who are able to have that kind of dialogue mm. that um, I'm, I'm really finding it quite surprising, actually, with the men that I've been speaking to, how, how open people are. And, um, you know, and that, that's been really encouraging to, to, to hear, to be honest. And I'm really excited for people to hear these conversations because 10 years ago when I launched the conversation, I was talking to women in a way that people weren't used to hearing mm. and seeing. And people would say, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, Lady Gaga talked about drug addiction and self-harm and having sex with strangers. And um, you know, that was really shocking and surprising and, and vulnerable information and stories that women were sharing. And I really hope to do the same thing with men. And some people would say, well, don't you think that men have had enough of a platform? Why are you giving men a platform? And I, and I, to that, I say, you know, I want to know where men are at. They've had a huge cultural reckoning over the last few years. And I, I'm just curious to hear men's perspectives. I think there has been a shift in consciousness. And I want to see how much the consciousness has shifted. Um, and I'm just curious about that. Tell me, who else? I mean, you're launching with Matthew McConaughey. Who else are you talking to? Because um, you have impeccable taste in guests, as your CV will attest. I thought you were going to say you have impeccable taste in men. <laughs> I don't which... know about that. You tell me. <laughs> I do. I think I do. I think all of my long-term partners are really good guys. Um, That's nice. Yeah, I do think that, actually. Um yeah, so I've got I I've got a whole bunch of other ones that I'm interviewing at the moment. I literally did one yesterday. I've got another one today, and so as we're going to start rolling those names out as well. Um, but it's a real cross section. I have to say, some of the people people are going to know, and other people they're just people who can really speak to masculinity and what the current um, understanding is, um, and and sort of more from the perspective of like also you know, where are, where are the blind spots and where do men need to work harder Yeah, um, by their own admission? So I think it's, it's, it's I'm finding it really fascinating. Um, are you um, aware of the 1975s and Matt Healy? No. For all of, for example, all of the festivals that want to have them on the bill, they say, yeah, sure, but there has to be a 50-50 male-female lineup across the whole festival or we're not playing. That's great wow. feminism, isn't it? Wow, I yeah. love it. Yeah. Oh my God, I've got to speak. So who's, I'm going to find out about this. because You, I want you to just this ask your exactly... husband who the 1975s are. He'll probably have played with them toward, or on the same circuit. Okay. They're, they're a very wow. cool band. And Matt Healy, I think is um, 
one of the best. I love him. But just 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 like that, I th- when you talk about modern masculinity, that is is about as good as it gets in, when it when it comes it to modern masculinity, isn't it? Yeah, because honestly, the, the the kind of thing that normally happens is like, yes, we'll put you on the bill and we'll add, you know, one woman or something. It's mm. like, and, and no, actually, no, we need it to be more substantial than that. And that's really leveraging male privilege to yeah. p- platform women. And that, I yeah. think that's fantastic. Yeah. It's a well, tangible thing that actually makes a difference. It makes a huge difference, right? And and everybody wins because the, the festival still gets the headline act that they want but the doors start to open more readily for female artists. And why shouldn't they? As long yeah. as you're good. I mean, I, mean I, would, I would love for them to also mandate that they get paid equally too, which Absolutely. probably doesn't happen. But who yeah. knows? Maybe it does. Well, hey, listen, let's look at us getting all greedy, demanding all equality. I know. <laughs> Jesus, isn't that enough? That Back there's 50% box, of you on the bill. Oh, and you want to get paid equally too? Oh, Jesus. for God's sake. Let's be demanding, Kate. <laughs> let's be demanding and ask for exactly what we want. Exactly. Uh, the other series that I was really intrigued to hear, which has only recently dropped, is your VS Voices. And I was so surprised to hear you were working with Victoria's Secrets when you consider the backstory to the brand and what it's been through recently. And then I started reading on it and it started to make sense to me um, that this is about a brand that's apologizing for its mistakes, that's trying to earn its place with its female customer again, and is literally got both hands held up saying, we got it wrong, we're, we're really sorry. Um, and we're gonna try and make that right. So you have become one of seven women alongside Bella Hadid and Stella McCartney and Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Um, in what the New York Times described as the most extreme and unabashed attempt at a brand turnaround in recent memory. And you're all advising the brand on how to be relevant to women again. So talk me through uh, how that approach came into you and what your initial response was. I mean, you were surprised to hear that I was involved. I was surprised when they came to me. I thought it was a joke when they (laughs) they came to me. I was like, am I getting punked or something? Like this is not for real. Um, but as it happens, um, a woman who I'm close with was um, working with them on the collective, the initiative that you mentioned with all these women. Mm-hmm. And so I was, so I paid attention. I was like, well, if she's involved, I'm at least going to have a conversation and hear what's going on. And one of the things that I think is really important is there's nothing we can do about the past. The past has happened. We cannot go back ever and change what has happened. But what we can do is in life when mistakes have happened or when you know as individuals when we've made bad choices is we can if we truly can take ownership of the of bad choices that we've made and change our behavior moving forward i've seen incredible things happen with people who have learned and, and grown from mistakes i didn't know if that was possible with a company i know it's possible with individuals yeah um because i've experienced that but i thought with a company how is that possible that is it, is it really possible that a company can acknowledge the depth of their terrible choices yeah. and actually turn that around? Or is this performative? Um, and that was my biggest concern is I didn't want to be involved in anything that was performative. Yeah, and by that, that you mean tokenistic, right. So just in case anybody's yeah. sort of scratching their heads and going, are we getting all upset about the fact that they used incredibly um, 
thin, tall supermodels to parade up and down catwalks for, for the Victoria fashion shows. It's not just that. It's the fact that the, the company had a history, um, well, certainly who was being scrutinised because its previous owner had a relationship with the now past sex offender uh, and paedophile, Jeffrey Epstein. And there were Correct. revelations about misogynistic corporate culture that trafficked in sort of sexism, sizeism and ageism. So, I mean, it couldn't have got... Any less <laughs> of a female-friendly place. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah. This, this, this woman has come in and she has turned the business around. Is the, Have I got this right? And there is now, the, you know, she's you're joined, you've joined the company at a stage where there's an entirely new executive team and it's forming a board of directors in which all but one seat will be occupied by women. Correct. Good. And that has actually happened. So that's, that is the background story. And so for all of those reasons, um, I was you know, obviously very reluctant to get involved. I spent about six months doing kind of due diligence and really understanding that the company at a very foundational level was moving away from the holding company that owned it so that they were having entirely new investors. Um, the people who had previously been involved were not going to be involved either financially or from a controls perspective. So it was a whole new team of people that were coming in within the company, um, owning the company. And they had this, this mission that was, that is, uh, you know, it's, it's very ambitious. Mm. And for me, what I found exciting was to be able to a collaborate with all these other incredible women, some of which you mentioned to really ideate and to bring everybody's expertise and skills and um, perspectives to the table. And if they were willing to listen to all of these women and integrate their ideas, there was a real solid chance with the addition of new executive leadership, new holding company, that they could really change moving forward the culture of what this company is about. Yeah. And, and, and so I... I like a challenge. I yeah. really do. I think that, and I also like to see when people are honest about where they've messed up in the past yeah. and are very, very committed to changing things moving forward. Sometimes I think, you know, they probably didn't know exactly what they were getting into with me because I'm, <laughs> I really imagine. am up in it, you know? Um, but, but I think it's, it's so far, it's been a really wonderful partnership because it is very reciprocal and I am able to bring, you know, not only creative ideas, but also ideas about their messaging, about who should be involved, about how they should be doing things. Now I'm just one person. Um, and there are, you know, many incredible women in the in the collective. And I, I don't know how much impact I have on an entire company, but I know that I have a voice and I know that having founded a company, um, having founded Girl Gaze and having run a company for the last eight years, I do know that the most significant change you can make is from the inside out. And that's a really good point that you raise it because the line between selling out and infiltrating from within can often be very hard to discern. But Girl Gaze is a platform that you run. It's a business that you own where you uh, you aggregate female talent and place them across the industry using your network and your good name. So Girl Gaze, for example, has been able to offer up talent by way of photography, direction, all kinds of stuff to work on what Victoria's Secret looks like now. Um, so there you are, infiltrating change 
from within. Yeah. You couldn't do that yeah. if you and hadn't become part of the collective. Is that what is was that your reasoning and reckoning with this? There was that was one of the reasons. Um, you know, I think that Girl Gaze has worked with so many, you know, incredible Fortune 500 brands from Levi's to Dove to Victoria's Secret, um, you know, and many, many more, Viacom, uh, Gucci, so many brands to provide female, non-binary um, and trans talent all in the audiovisual uh, areas. And I think, again, I'm really interested in solutions. I've been working a really long time um, you know, people talk a good game. There's a lot of bullshit out there. People pay lip service to whatever is kind of like the current thing that people need to be paying attention to. Um, and, and for many years, you know, no one gave a shit about women or inclusion. Mm -hmm. And now everybody does. But do they? Because what I did with Girl Gaze is I was like, look, everyone's complaining about not being able to have access to a pipeline of, of women. Well, here you go. I've aggregated and curated you know, thousands and thousands of women in 46 countries, go ahead and hire them. And you actually see who puts their money where their mouth is. And guess what? It's way less than the people who are flying the flag publicly mm -hmm. saying that they do actually care about this issue. And, and I see that across the board with companies who, you know, post on social media saying that they will pay for their, regarding the abortion bans in America, in, mm -hmm. in certain states. You see companies saying, we support our workers, we'll pay for them to travel to other states. And then you hear, behind the scenes that actually that company has been giving money to the Republican party and they won't actually be doing that. So there's a wow. lot of kind of lip service that goes on. Yeah. And I'm and really you're calling it out. Good solution. on you. Good on you because you I mean, can't just let them say it and that. get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. There's Good a price to pay for that, you know, and I and I and I definitely just don't want to be involved in anything that is talk and no action. And uh, you know, and I'm interested in collaborating with companies and organizations that do want to create real tangible change, uh, then, you know, get hold of me and let's talk about it. But if you don't want to, like, just don't bother to speak to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are going to say that you're doing something and you're not prepared to be challenged and called out. Now, um, are you ready for your, the first of your three questions, Amanda? Yes, yes. As somebody that knows how to percolate a really important conversation, I wanted to look back and ask you, what have proved to be your most valuable and formative conversations in your own life? I mean, Kate, there are so many people that I've spoken to who have said things that have changed my perspective or helped me in really profound ways. I couldn't even name all of them. I would say the most significant, the most life-changing conversations I've had have probably been the ones that you have quietly with yourself where you sort of really have a reckoning with you and you based on everything that I've learned about this. What are you going to do about this, Amanda? Um, those kind of really challenging to the core, who are you conversations. And those are the ones that I do have with myself. Now that could come from months of conversations with my therapists or you know people who are teachers or people who guide me and I do have an incredible you know community of people who I look to for guidance um, it could be after months of me really looking at a certain subject within myself and speaking to many people and trying to kind of work it out and then at the end of the day I have to assimilate all that information and kind of get 
clear with myself about, okay, what am I going to do now? What have I learned from speaking to all these people? And what am I going to do now with this information? So those are the ones that ultimately have been the big decision makers for me, because no matter what anyone else says, at the end of the day, we're the ones that have to take the action and we're the ones that have to make the choices. Well, you talk the talk to yourself and then you've got to walk the walk yourself, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Right. right it does. Yeah. Like, I love that expression. What about when we look at your career and you rewind to some of those pivotal moments that have underpinned your professional self? Um, what were the conversations that started, for example, the conversation or your 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 opportunity to go and work at The Word? And did you have to have difficult conversations with your parents around that because you were just 15? Well, lucky for me, my parents didn't seem to object to me doing The Word at all. Um, and, you know, I met a guy in a pub who said, you should go, and I needed a job. I just needed a job and no one would hire me because I was 15. Why did you need a job? Were you not at school? Um, I had just come out of White City Children's Home. And so I really did need a job because I needed to support myself and I did not want to live at home. And so I was trying to get a job. No one would hire me because I was 15 and maybe I was not really skilled at doing anything. And I met a guy in a, in a pub who said, oh, you should go for this audition for this TV show. And you know, in England, we had like sort of like four TV shows at that time. <laughs> TV channels, I mean? like, yeah. There was, wasn't like no, there was there was nothing. Yeah, yeah there was four channels. There was and, nothing. And for young, for youth television, yeah, you're talking about a handful of slots, aren't you? Exactly. So, so I went, and um, for whatever reason, I am you know good at talking to people, and I'm really, I think I'm really interested in people, and so I didn't have any previous experience, and. And I got that job and um, for what, you know, my parents just let me do it. And I'm really grateful they did because other parents could have been like, hell no. Um, but, you know, I had just come out of a children's home, so they probably didn't have much control over what I was doing anyway. Um, and so why, why I did. Why can I ask why you were in a children's home at that stage? You were 14. Because I moved out. Yeah, I moved out of my mom's home and you can't do that. Yeah, it's illegal. You know, you have to, you, you can't do that. And so I was I was considered a missing person. Um, because I was living um, away from home as a, as a teen. And so I basically got put in a children's home because I was found and made a ward of court. Um, so that meant that my parents had no control over me. So yeah, when I'm complaining about my teenagers and I say that, I'm like, oh my God, I have it so easy compared to how my parents had it. Um, Especially when you think of your, the, the age that your daughter is now, it's exactly the same. And Exactly. Could, yeah, wow. Oh, I think about that a lot. Yeah. But like those conversations, you know, um, at the time, it wasn't really a conversation. It was like, I'm doing this. And but um, it was a guy in the pub, know, right, that, that set you on the path to what became yeah. a broadcast career. Can exactly. you even remember his name? Did you know him? No, I've got no clue. I've got no <laughs> clue. But like, that's what happened, you know. Yeah. So I don't even remember the con I remember that conversation and just kind of like he gave me a scrap of paper with a phone number on it. And I called. And uh, it was whoever it was. And they said, oh, yeah, show up at this time at this place. And um, and I did. And then I got that job. So it was very odd because I went from being like a schoolgirl to within like six months being on, on the word. And it was a very, you know, unusual and bizarre situation to be in for a 15-year-old that had just come out of a children's home. Very odd. And it took me years to kind of like integrate that experience. Because at that time as well, the, the show 
created so many headlines because it was there. It was designed to provoke, right? That you became definitely a, a fixture. Um, in fact, you some could say that the tabloids became fixated with you. They start. They termed you wild child, which must have almost given you permission to do whatever the hell you like, right? Talk about accountability. The British press has zero accountability, and and they still do. They 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 still sorry. They still don't. I mean, you know, not much has changed actually. The way that the British press speaks about women, the way that the British press bullies people, and decides what the narrative is about people, is still in full effect. And the impact of tabloid media on women who become famous for whatever reason. Um, you know, is extremely detrimental. And I cannot believe that it's 2022 and that there is no parameters in place to, you know, protect people. Because for me, I left the UK, not because I didn't want to live in the UK, but because of the viciousness of tabloid media there. And I think had I have stayed in the UK, I don't know that I'd be alive today. I think it was very, very damaging for my mental health. Really? I know it was, really? and that's why I had to leave. So that's what informed your oh, decision definitely. to just up at sticks and go at 19? 100%. Blimey. 100%. No question. I, I was so... Once I understood the what trauma was, and that is a word that people kind of band about, but, you know, you can experience trauma from an entire organization, in, in which case the British tabloid media, which I absolutely did for so many years, and it's 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 bullying, um, the things that were said about me continuously on a daily basis that I had, there was no social media. So I couldn't dispute anything. I couldn't. There's no right to reply. Anything. Yeah. Nothing. And what that does is it it creates a silencing and a muzzling and, uh, and a misconception about the reality that becomes the truth for so many people. And it is horrible. The, the level of shaming is um is profound and i see it continuing with other people um, and it breaks my heart because i know exactly what it feels like and it is horrible and i think the british press has a lot to be held accountable for um stories we probably don't even know because maybe people aren't public about the impact of it some people are and some people aren't i'm sure but even now when i look at something you know, you're, you're talking about feeling targeted, hounded, right? Unfairly treated. Even, yes. I, I don't know if you remember, if he was relevant when you were still living in the UK. Do you remember a DJ called Tim Westwood? Yes. Anyway, he's been uh, accused of sex with a... So the way it's been reported is, I'll give you an example. I've just, I just quickly looked this up. Tim Westwood accused of sex with 14-year-old girl when he was in his 30s. Um, sorry, that's rape. That's language, right? Yes. The language is so wrong. Exactly. Like he didn't exactly. have sex with a fourteen-year-old girl. He raped an underage girl. Surely, I mean, she may have consented, but she wasn't child. age to consent. She's a child. So that is actually something right. else entirely. And this, this is how it's reported, you know, on the BBC News and the Guardian. These are reputable. So, so surely, and I mean, when you talk about yeah, the press and accountability, just that language alone is. That just needs not even tweaking, rewriting. Right. But but it's it's calling things as they are, right? I mean, I also have spoken about this exact languaging in, in other cases where I've said, no, this is not sex with an underage girl, this is rape or this is sexual assault. Let's mm. call this what this is. Yeah, sexual assault. And I think, you know, I think that there is um when it's suited, when it suits the media, the British tabloid media, they use words that are inaccurate 
But at times when they need to use words that are um, impactful, like using the word rape instead of sex with an underage girl, they don't want to do it. And I don't really understand why. Mm. Um, I think that is something that needs to change and more people need to draw people's attention to it. Mm -hmm. um, but that happens a lot. It happens over here as well. Where it it's does, like, no, yeah. no, that's actually not accurate reporting. You're not calling it what it is. And, and weirdly, the music industry has not really had its reckoning. Yet. And I think that that kind of, I don't know that it's going to. I don't know that it's going to, to be honest. I think that, you know, look, obviously I'm still close to it somewhat because of my husband and mm. I don't I think people are aware that they have to behave differently whether people are actually behaving differently I'm not quite sure and I think that the music industry has not had its its reckoning and I don't know that it will because I'm, I feel like that moment may have passed well it took on a, a long on a, time on a mass level. when you well on a mass level absolutely but when you look at something like the r kelly case and how many women came forward and how they were just ignored for so long yeah well how many for, years that was going on yeah, for yeah yeah but it's still if you think about it it's still um you know it it whilst underage girls want to have sex with rock stars that is still going to happen it's not just about the men it's also about how do we build self-esteem in our young girls and teach them that that isn't going to actually build their self-esteem in some way? I mean, take from a girl, I mean, I was married to John Taylor when I was, 19. you know, I mean, he was 29 and I was, you know, 19. So, you know, I understand it. Um, and I think that maybe we look back at things through a different lens today, um, you know, and maybe look at things differently, you know, and how, you know, I, I'm grateful for my marriage with John. You know, he he was a really wonderful man and husband and co and is a great co-parent. You know, we have Atlanta together. But certainly when I look at the music industry across the board, I think, man, there's a lot of bad behavior that's still going on. And, you know, what's going to happen about it? Probably not a lot. Well, we can keep referencing it like this and have important conversations about it. So that that's the bit that we can do that's right true. now. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know. I actually wanted to kind of put together an initiative that had like a safe space for young girls at concerts because my daughter's 15. She goes to concerts and she'll go by herself because she loves music so much. And and I really, you know, and, and I see so many young girls at stroke shows as well. They've got a really, you know, part of their fan base is very young. And I, and I keep thinking about, especially festivals where people are mm. wasted and there's mm. people that are fucked up and, and maybe kids are drinking or whatever the hell they're doing, ingesting whatever because they're teens and they're young and they're checking it out. But like, let's have a safe space mm. where girls, if they feel unsafe or if they feel like, fuck, I've drank too much or yeah. what has happened, I don't feel right. Like they can go somewhere at that festival and feel like they're in a, a safe space where they're not going to get taken advantage of. They're not going to get mistreated or whatever. And I, I, for a while, really thought that would be a really good idea. The same way this band is saying we want 50-50 on the, on the yeah. bill. I'd like to say, yeah, you can have this band as a headliner, but we need to have a safe space for anyone that feels like they need to go and be in a safe space for a duration of this festival. There's a good initiative here in the UK. It's called Ask for Angela. So if you're a woman in a bar and you're feeling, you know, like you're, you're vulnerable, that you need to get out of there quickly, that somebody's given you unwanted uh, attention, that you possibly could have been spiked. You just go to the bar staff and you say, is Angela here? 
And that's code for call the police. Wow. Do people use that? That, well, it's on the back of toilet doors in some bars and restaurants, but it, it could oh, be far more amazing. public. Isn't that great? Oh, I love that. They need to be better known. We need to make that stuff famous. Well, they just need to attach someone famous to it. That will, yeah. that will do it. Uh, ask for Angela, you know, is Angela here? I love that. That's so good. Yeah. See if you can roll that into the States. We've actually just touched on two really very seminal conversations there. Talk me through the conversation that started the conversation. Because for me, I think you've done so much to change the way talk TV um, is embraced. Thank you. That is a, that's really lovely to hear. And I appreciate you saying that. The conversation started because I was having conversations in my home um, that were really helpful and insightful for me and my girlfriends that were having those conversations. And so um, I, at the time I had just had my twins and I had really bad postpartum and I was Googling postpartum and trying to listen to other women's stories um, because I was really struggling and I just couldn't find those stories anywhere. And I thought, this is so bizarre. Like, why is no one talking about this? It's gotta be other women who are affected by this. Of course, millions of women are. And I sort of realized in my search that issues that, you know, so many women are dealing with at different stages of life were just not being discussed. And I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna have to do something about this. And in fact, it really pulled me out of my depression because I started, um, you know, saying to different women that I knew, hey, listen, you've lived through this difficult thing or, um, you know, you've had this experience. Can I talk to you about it and let's film it and just put it on the Internet so that people can find it? Because these stories are not out there. And yet so many women are dealing with this subject, whatever the subject was. And, um, you know, to my surprise and immense gratitude um you know many women said yes I'll talk to you about this and you can film it and that was the beginning of the conversation and I was literally just going to put it online so that people could like google it and find stories on you know body dysmorphia and postpartum depression and divorce and codependency and uh you know love addiction and like all these different things and then um Demi Moore who uh, you know, is a, is a close friend of mine, uh, was like, I want to see these interviews you're doing. And she's said, you know, how can I be involved? I want to help support what you're doing and get these stories out in the world. And so she became my EP and we share the same manager. And he said, well, now both of you are doing this. Let me see like how I can help. And so he was able to no one thought that this this would exist as a show. Every network I spoke to was like, yeah, we're not going to pay for this because no one's going to come and do it. There's no way that these women are going to talk about this stuff. And so I literally had to like pay for the first ones myself so that people could see that, that it was possible. I, so, I can so believe that, Amanda, because you know what? They don't have any faith in the power of good conversation. And it's what no. we all, it is the currency that we all trade in all day, every day. It doesn't matter what language we speak. I just don't understand why they just can't see the seminence of a really well thought out, well constructed conversation amongst like-minded people or, or not like-minded people, like even that. better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah even yeah. better. Yeah. It's still like that, Kate. When the conversation launched in the UK, Five years ago, it was on Sky. I went over to do press and I sat down with journalists and I said, right, I haven't been on TV here in 15, 20 years, however long it was, a long time. Who are the women that have their own shows? Because I want to go on their shows. I want to talk to them. Mm. And there wasn't anybody. There yeah. wasn't anybody. And it was so sad for me. There still isn't anybody. And by the way, in the US, it's the same. The men that keep getting given well, you ha you have their talk-based like, shows. You have Ellen and Kelly Clarkson and... 
stuff like that. Daytime. But, Women yeah. are allowed to talk about daytime stuff that is fluffy and light, mm -hmm. and they are not given permission to talk about news or, I mean, Rachel Maddow. We've got Rachel Maddow, who's left MSNBC, and I don't know where she's going, but like, women are not allowed to get into stuff. Um, you know, we're just not given the platform, and that remains the case today in 2020. So exhausting. You have to keep it? making your own platform. Well, yeah, in some ways, there's there's far more to be sort of taken from that in as much as, you know, if the roads aren't there like the Romans, you you build them out, right? You make your own. Yeah, but why you, should you we get have to do to? it your way? You, you no, know, we shouldn't right, have but, to. But why should we have to? Because I've done that my entire career. And not only are you trying to have a career that is hard enough in itself, but you have to build the road as well. Mm -hmm. It is... It is so exponentially exhausting yeah. to have to do that, you know? Okay. And that's what I've done my entire career. And I wish it wasn't the case because of my gender, but it is. Also, did you notice a big significant change in people's appetite for the conversation once Demi came on board as, the, as your executive producer and you had that star power sitting over the top of it? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so that in itself is, is both brilliant and depressing in the same it's breath. It's brilliant and depressing because the fact remains is that um, the sad reality is, is that every corporation looks at people as a number. They look at your social media numbers mm -hmm. and they don't really care if you've got skill, experience, talent. They care about what are your social media numbers and how famous are you. The women that you had on that show, you know, Jane Fonda. Hillary oh Clinton, God, yeah. you know, Lady Gaga, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, you, you know, these were phenomenal women that were known in all pockets and corners of the world. It gave you the ability to really take that message out there. If it had just been you with no profile in the States talking to everyday women about exactly the same stuff, would it have worked? Well, there's a segment in the show where I would talk to everyday women about the same thing that I had spoken to mm -hmm. the high profile women about. And what I wanted to do was to show that um, Lady Gaga was having an experience of life because she was Lady Gaga, but she was also having a very human experience based on the fact that all, hum all you know, women are having very similar stages of life experiences. And so it was amazing because I would talk to you, I'd ask a question of, you know, Lady Gaga, and her answer would often be very similar to the answer that Jane Doe that I had interviewed for the same show would would give. And it was beautiful because I really wanted to connect women yeah. um, and to show our common experiences, not our differences. Yeah. And, and, and doing that and including the everyday women in the series was really important to me um, for that reason. So would it have been as successful? No, because people wouldn't have watched it in the same way. But what I was able to do was to sandwich in there in between two yeah. very famous women. I was able to sandwich in someone who was less famous that just had a really incredible message. Yeah. Because I knew that people would not tune out because there was two famous women on either side of the not famous woman. Yeah. And I was able to kind of platform lesser known women by using that strategy, which was again, important to me. Yeah, it was beautifully done and it continues to be beautifully done. And I would implore anybody, go go, go download all the back uh, catalogue of, of the conversation. You will come away enlightened, smiling and informed. Are you ready for your next question? Yes, I am.
being the host of a talk show and you're the host of three means that you have to ask a lot of important questions. But what have been the most important questions you've had to ask either of yourself or of others across the course of a very eventful life? And that can be anything from can I have a divorce to can I have an abortion to can I get a lawyer? Yeah. Well, I've had to ask all those questions. Yeah. Although. And you've written and spoken about all of that stuff. So I hope that I'm only yeah 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 in my stuff book, that you're happy to yeah, share yeah yeah in my book and it's messy I've written about getting divorced about having an abortion and um yeah so I don't mind to talk about those things at all but the question that I think has been the most significant one that if I could ask if I only had could ask all my guests one question um it would probably be what would you tell your 14 year old self mm. and that is a question that's been you know, I've been asking people for, you know, a long time, over 10 years now. And it brings the most insight and clarity into how people view themselves. And it opens a, a, a part of them that is very vulnerable and is very authentic because they envision themselves as a 14 year old. And the answers that I've gotten from people, sometimes I could have just done a whole interview based on that answer you know because it's, well, it's hindsight powerful, isn't it impactful response yeah yeah I know yeah it is and it's and oh gosh it's just, that's it yeah that question and it's always a bomb we always want to go back and reassure ourselves not to stress not to worry to take those risks to to do that thing that felt so scary at that time um it's always about going back and being kinder to our younger selves isn't it mm, always always be kinder yeah but we're not even as we, I sit here at this age and stage of my life at 49, I can reflect upon that, but I don't apply it to my everyday life. I don't know that I'm necessarily kinder to myself than I was at 16, 14. Mm, maybe you can work on that. Maybe I need to. <laughs> <laughs> I think I definitely need to. I encourage you to. <laughs> we can all work on that, but yeah. <laughs> now, listen, I'm really mindful that I have uh, only a few minutes left with you and I have one final question that I want to roll through. So are you ready for your third and final? I am. that you would never have had the courage to risk failing if you hadn't been through so many, many, many crises. Your words, not mine. So I wondered, what were those crises and what were the life lessons that came wrapped around them that have given you the courage to risk failing? There are so many that it would take us a long time to go through them all. <laughs> that really. sounds like a life well lived. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's impossible to, you know, it's impossible to be present in your life and not make mistakes. I think the older I get, the harder it is to make mistakes, weirdly, not easier, because I know the impact of them. And I know what it takes to get back on course after uh, making mistakes. But nobody that I've ever interviewed that it has a successful life has not made a lot of mistakes. And that's always been very comforting to me. Um, you know, failing is part of succeeding. And for me, it's the courage to get back up after you've been knocked down. That is where the courage comes. It's not everyone's going to get knocked down, but it's like, what do you do when you're down there? Are you going to stay? How long are you going to stay there? Mm -hmm. um, are you going to be willing to be self-reflective? 
Are you going to be willing to take ownership of the mistake? Are you going to be willing to say, how do I not do this again? What is the lesson in this? Mm. And so for, for all of the kind of crises that I've had, um, I have always been willing to look at what is the lesson? Like what is, let me get this lesson so I don't have to do this again. Yeah. Because if I don't get the lesson, I'm gonna be here again. And God knows I don't want that. And sometimes well, I am, by the way. Yeah, some, well, that's, sometimes we all I do am that. Because we all do that, but that- And by, that's human. Well, yeah, it's also the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Expecting a different result. Yeah. 100%. So I think for me, um, all, of, all of the crisis equals opportunity. And that's what I, how I see it. Ah, I, I really do. I love that. Crisis equals opportunity. Because when you look at, for example, you know, when you talked earlier about being in a children's home at the age of 14, because you didn't want to go home, you think about your own children feeling like that, that would just devastate you. That must've been a really hard place to find yourself at. But look at what came from that episode in your life. And that surely exactly. has to qualify as a crisis, I would imagine, yeah. 100%, being in the children's home taught me some really valuable lessons. One of them was that I was able to find common ground with practically everybody in there. On the outside, we couldn't have been more different. But on the inside, the, the experience that I was having and that a lot of the other kids were having was so similar. And it really did teach me that it doesn't matter what our outsides are, that there is a common experience and common ground to be found, which is a connection point for me with practically anybody. And that taught me a lot about interviewing people as well and about how to find that thing that is the common ground. Um, it was invaluable. I mean, I don't think I'd be the interviewer that I am had I not have had that experience and have really? known that we are more similar than we are different. Can I ask, did feeling famous and hunted by the media as you as you just as talked about earlier, did that feel like a crisis of, of sorts? Oh, definitely, definitely. It was, a ro it was, when we talk about like micro traumas, or, you know, which is like repeated mini traumas. It's like trauma with a big T and trauma with a little T, right? And mm -hmm. I had like the mini T's every single day, um, you know, punctuated by big traumas when someone would sell a horrible story about me or there would be some, you know, fucked up headline talking about how fat I was after I had given birth or whatever the things were, right? And for me, that was continually being traumatized over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I was, you know, there's like, it's called fight or flight where your, your mm. body, your nervous system is just on alert all the time. You're and running on adrenaline. That's constantly. Yeah. But that is like yeah. living in a state of crisis, isn't it? Cause you're heightened the whole time. You're, it is. you're hunched and ready to go. I couldn't you know? wait mm -hmm. to get to America where nobody knew me, where I could be anonymous and walk down the street and not have to worry. It took me years to not have to, look over my shoulder or, you know, it took me years to drop that. And it was such a relief. It was such a relief to not be a famous person. I was like, thank God. And then came motherhood. So you decide to make this huge change. Um, I mean, motherhood is, is a beautiful thing, but you talk about having postpartum with your twins. That in itself is again, that's a mental health crisis, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, look, my mental health journey has been long and extensive. And I had a lot of depression from um, my childhood. I had a lot of trauma and the impact of that manifested in, you know, pretty severe depression that was compounded 
I had postpartum after my first kid. I had postpartum after my second and third, my twins. So it's been a journey. And really has. I Jeez. quite frankly don't do anything that will compromise, seriously compromise my mental health at this point. I don't work with people. I don't get into, I don't get into situations that are unhealthy to the best of my ability. I just yeah, won't yeah, do yeah. it. It's like you couldn't pay me enough money to get into a circumstance that what that is going to cost me my mental health it's just not worth it for me i have to do certain things to keep myself balanced and to keep myself grounded and to keep myself okay right yeah. and not just surviving but thriving thriving i want to thrive this is my one life i don't want to be surviving i want to be thriving and so yeah. how do i do that and i'm pretty committed to that path I'm pretty committed to myself in that regard then I can be the best mother then I can show up and bring whatever gifts I have to the world then I can show up for my partner you know otherwise I can't do any of it what are the tools what are the um, parameters in which you work that keep you on the right side of sane happy balanced there are a lot of things um, but I would to kind of paraphrase it um, you know I think any kind of self-reflection is really important um, whether that's therapy or that's group support. I'm a big advocate for groups because you get to see yourself reflected in other people's stories. Mm. Um, I love group work. I do a lot of that. Um, meditation, um, eating well, um, getting enough sleep and being in nature. Those are the things that I try to do every single day. And, and I'm quite protective about those things. It's like, no, I don't fuck with those things. Those things are happening. And, That's your house of uh, cards, right? If you take one out, it, it all comes in. It is, yeah. it is. Yeah. So it's like, nah, that, this is what needs to happen for me to show up. You know, for years and years, well, since 2011, I've been listening to your conversations and it's been my absolute pleasure today to finally get to sit down and have one of my own with you. Um, thank you so much. I, I hope that you carry on uh, talking up, challenging, pissing people off and demanding better. Oh, Kate, thank you so much. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a weird thing to be interviewed by someone else when you are an interview. I'm sure you yeah. find that too. I hate uh, it. You know, yeah, I'm, I don't, I, I don't it. love it. I have to say, but I, I really have enjoyed talking to you and spending time with you. So thank you for your thoughtful questions and thank you for what you do in the world. God knows, you know, female voices need to be elevated and I'm really happy to, to be a part of what you're doing. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And don't forget, Amanda has three podcast. Well, she has three projects out at the moment. The Conversation on Podcast, VS Voices. Uh, well, you can get those wherever you get your podcasts. And um, her new series, Kicking Off with Matthew McConaughey, will be available when and where, Amanda? Um, so the Conversation about the Men special series is going to be launching September 19th. And that will be wherever you can, wherever you listen to your podcast. It'll be on iHeart and everywhere else cannot wait thank you so much enjoy the rest of your day and give los angeles my very best thank you kate and if you want to pour yourself another episode of white white question time why not pop your cork in the 90s cellar of our back catalogue where you'll find episodes with the likes of all saints danny bear steps nikki chapman gary barlow denise van out melanie sykes matt goss danny minogue and many more my thanks to you as always for lending me your ears and to Ben Robbins and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Editing is by Andy Axon. Our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. I'll be back next Friday with more guests. Until then, thank you as always for your company. Listener.